the Exalt Podcast. My name is Christopher Shagnon. And I'm Sophia Hagalani-Albov. We are really excited today. Last month, we had one of our colleagues from Global Development Studies, Antti, join us. And today, we are super delighted to have another one of our colleagues from Global Development Studies join us. But this time, we're going to be talking about a completely different context. So it's really neat because it allows us to see some of the variety that we have within the study of extractivisms and alternatives. So we can go all the way from tech to water to alternatives to extractivisms, just super exciting adventure. So I think without further ado, I will stop talking and introduce our colleague, Anna Hetkinen. Thank you. Really nice to be joining you in your wonderful podcast. I am Anna Heikkinen. I'm a doctoral researcher in global development studies at the University of Helsinki. Welcome, Anna. So for our audience out there, could you tell us a little bit about your research? What are you focusing? Where are you focusing? Yes, sure. My research deals with uh, climate vulnerabilities and water questions in Peru in the Andean region, mostly. And in my research, I'm mostly interested in questions like uh, what makes people vulnerable under climate change? What causes uh, climate and water related vulnerabilities? And uh, for example, why tensions over water emerge? Is it because of climate change or perhaps something else? Those are some really big questions that you're tackling. How did you happen to get interested in water? Uh, Well, um, actually, the interest uh, arose already during my master's studies, because I also did um, field work for my master's thesis in in Peru uh, back in 2016. And um, then in my master's thesis, I was looking at at climate vulnerabilities um, um, there in Peru. And and back then I was mostly interested in how um, glacier retreat of the Andean glaciers uh, is influencing people's lives and and livelihoods. And it was then that I realized that that water is um, very central issue in climate change and and also climate related vulnerabilities. So um, I wanted to know more about it and dig deeper into this question. So so that's what led me to do my doctoral research on this topic. That's fascinating. Why did you pick as well like the the Peruvian Andes to begin with? Um, And also going back to the climate vulnerabilities too, are they particularly vulnerable there? Is that why you chose it or was it just a general interest or? Um, Well, I also have to start here with with my master's studies because then I was looking for a topic that would be related to climate change and environmental change. And then I found out about uh, the tropical glaciers in, in South America. Uh, which are a particularly fragile ecosystem in front of climate change because of global warming. The ice cover uh, of these glaciers have been melting on an accelerated pace. And then as a master's student, I 
I found out when I was doing a literature review that there are a lot of research from natural sciences perspective on the impacts of climate change and, and glacier melting in this region, but uh, less research on how this climate change and glacier recession is affecting local people. So I did not know back then that that climate change or, or glacier recession would make or is it making the local people uh, vulnerable? Um, but when I went there to do my, my field work, I, I found out that, well, both the climate change and the melting of the glaciers is affecting local lifestyles and, and livelihoods. But not only that, uh, it was not the only explanation to, to why the local people are in a in a very unequal and vulnerable position. So in your current project, you're looking not just at the glaciers, but more generally at the role that water plays within the larger socio-ecological system in the Peruvian Andes, yes? Yes, that is correct. Fantastic. That's so interesting. So set the scene for us a little bit. What's it like there? Personally, I've never been to Peru, nor have I been to the Peruvian Andes. Can you give our listeners a little bit of insight into kind of what the environment is? Is it already a wet environment? Is it a dry environment? Are they in drought? Like, tell us about it a bit. It's a very diverse environment in terms of um, the nature and the climate and the, the, the culture, the local lifestyles. I think that is one of the reasons that, that got me so fascinated about the region and why I wanted to return there for my doctoral research. But, well, first of all, the... Um, climatic or environmental landscapes of the of the ants um, is um, that the climate for instance is divided in in two different season, seasons so they don't have like summer spring and uh, winter autumn like here in Finland but there is a dry season and a wet season uh, and kind of like the for example, the farming and the lifestyles, lifestyle of the, the local farmers um, with whom I'm doing research is, is kind of like dictated by, by this um, cycle between dry uh, and wet seasons. And uh, because of the, the Andean mountain range, range there are also uh, many different microclimates, like depending on the, the altitude uh, so like usually there is like more agricultural production or, or cities in the lower valleys, uh, like between the, the mountains. And then the higher you go, like less possibilities you have, like for cultivating um, uh, different like vegetables or crops. Like usually they, they grow uh, potatoes at the higher altitudes, which is like more resistant to to. Um, colder environments so that also the climate gets uh, colder like the higher you you get up uh, in the mountains and um, yes in terms of like lifestyles and cultures there are like 
um, indigenous people um, or indigenous communities, peasant communities, and they all have like very different kind of like cultural traditions. So it's not like all the same throughout there, the Andean um, mountain range, but very, very rich and, and diverse. That sounds amazing. I'm curious, like hearing about these villages and like uh, going up in these microclimates, being able to grow different things at different altitudes. How does climate change factor into all of this? And like you're you're also talking about like cities in different areas. So I would guess that there are like less populated areas when you're going like further up the mountains. How do these sort of dynamics of, of climate and of we say like politics or population? How is this all kind of coming together? Or are they coming together, I guess? Mm, yes, well, according to the interviews I have made with local people and especially the, the local uh, smallholder farmers, uh, climate change, first of all, is already affecting their, their livelihoods. Uh, and it's not only the glaciers, which mostly affect the, the availability of, of water, because most of the water the, the local farmers um, use for irrigation, for example, it comes from the glaciers. And as they're melting um, in the future, there will be challenges with, with, um, with water supply. So that is one thing. Uh, then there is um, also the change of these like climate seasons um, that I talked about. So the Andean farming has been like based on farming calendars that follow these wet and dry seasons. And now because of climate change, they're not like drastic climate changes yet so that the temperature would be like um, so much higher now. But the, the change that has been hap happening is like the kind of like shifts between these seasons and, and that it's not so clear anymore. Like when, the, when, when is it uh, the wet season and when there is the, the dry season. So that complicates, for example, like um, the, for the farmers that um, like when they can harvest or... or um, uh, for example, um, and then the other things is the climate extremes. So there are, for example, um, like harsh rains or, or periods of uh, frost that destroy the, the crops. Um, so these kind of things are affecting the, the local livelihoods. But Chris, you asked about the dynamics of like... Um, the politics and, and cities and, and climate change. So um, the other thing that is is or has been affecting the, the local farmers' livelihoods in the past decades um, are the, the um, agricultural and economic policies in Peru that have been very much um, neoliberal oriented, which means that they have been uh, prioritizing financing and supporting, for example, um, big um, commercial farms um, and supporting them with water in infrastructures. And um, also in Peru, the, the Andean farmers for whom the potatoes are one of the most in 
important crops that they cultivate. It's very hard for them to get into the markets because at the same time, there are, for example, potatoes exported from, from the US and they cannot compete with these prices. So while climate change, uh, we cannot neglect that it would not affect um, local people's livelihoods, but there is also this aspect of markets and, and policies that makes it very much difficult for the local farmers to um, adapt to climate change because they don't have the, the resources, for example, to invest in irrigation infrastructures. And the other aspect, how these agricultural and economic policies are influencing the, the local farming is that uh, it has pushed the, the local Andean smallholders to kind of um, um, to intensify their um, farming to keep up and, and try to uh, make it to, to the markets. Uh, but this has had like controversial impacts because the Andean farming has traditionally been based on on like crop rotation and, and cultivating in terraces which uh, this technique is, is based on the, um, traditional Andean farming that dates to the Incas, the Peruvian Andean uh, indigenous populations, agricultural technique, uh, which are based to, to their knowledge and observations of how it is best to, <laughs> to keep up with, with cultivating food in, in those um, challenging conditions. And these have actually like been helping the local farmers to adapt to climate change uh, because they preserve the soil better but with these like more intense farming the land has gotten like more poor so this has meant that the farmers have to use more uh, fertilizers and pesticides which means um, that they have to make uh, more uh, investments and and what this means is that um, there is less money that they can actually gain from their produce, which means that they, they get, get like even less money from their farming. Man, that globalized food supply chain really just wreaks havoc everywhere it touches, doesn't it? Um, I also do a study of farming. My, the farming that I'm looking at is kind of the the role of food system redesign actually here in Finland, because, you know, I'm a, I'm a lovely outsider, hopefully starting to be an insider here in Finland. And yeah, it's amazing how when these kind of traditional structures of agriculture kind of give way to these kind of expectations of industrialization in places where it maybe doesn't actually make sense, how much that can really destroy the, or undermine like the fabric of the community. So you said that you were um, in the field, you've been in the field in Peru and that you're working with farmers. So what kind of um, vulnerabilities are you hearing the farmers articulate? I, I assume you're doing ethnographic inquiry and interviews and that kind of stuff. So what kind of stories are you hearing from the ground? That is actually a very interesting question. Uh, because to, to give some like theoretical background, uh, the vulnerabilities, how I approach them in my research is that 
there are like climate change and like economic and different kind of structural factors that uh, affect uh, especially livelihoods and cause livelihood losses. Uh, and this is the, mm, the kind of like uh, one of the frameworks to look at vulnerabilities. So that was also the, the hypothesis of, of my, or is the hypothesis of my, my research uh, that I'm focusing on the impacts of, of the farming livelihoods. But what was actually interesting that when I was um, doing my field research and, and asking people about the environmental changes and the changes in their, their livelihoods, um, they did talk about those, but like also like different kind of like feelings and experiences that how they um, experience the, the environment where they live transformed by climate change. And people were talking, for example, like how sad it is to see how the rivers are suffering from the drought or or how painful it is to see the the snow or the white um, white mountain peaks melting and uh, and uh, becoming like lifeless uh, black rocks and these kind of like expressions just came up in in many interviews which made me think about that that like vulnerabilities can mean uh, a lot more than than just livelihoods and and kind of like economic aspects of of people's lives and and um, there is actually like literature from the Andean region at least uh, talking about like these like symbolic and cultural meanings that for example like the glacier retreat has so it's not only that people lose the access to water or water supply that that is of course like extremely important as well but there are also these like other meanings that the climate change and environmental change causes in in people's lives which i consider that should be taken like also seriously in in climate discussions instead of like just reducing the, the climate questions in economic functions. Uh, damn those economic terms. Like we can't conflate well-being and livelihood solely with like the economic aspects of sustainability or well-being. Like economics is not the measure. It's like this short-sighted shorthand that we seem to have accepted under capitalism to be the measure of all things. Oh, well, is it going well economically? Well, if it's going well economically, then everything is fine, right? Wrong, I think. Um, the Andean region, that's where, for example, scholars like Merisol de la Cadena and Mario Blazer work is based in that same type of context. Uh, yes, and Marisol de la Cadena, she's um, looking more at the political ontology. Uh, well, she's focusing on the mountains as well, um, and the like political ontologies and 
meanings related to, to that, which is like a slightly like a different kind of theoretical perspective that I have, but it has to do like with these like um, ontolo ontological questions and, and like alternative cosmovisions of like perceiving and experiencing uh, nature and she's mm, if I'm correct like she's focusing working with indigenous communities uh, while I'm interested in, in in peasant communities and I have worked with peasant communities but what I think it's interesting that um, although like in, in research and in general like the um, we talk about these like diverse and alternative cosmovisions in the context of indigenous communities. But um, in my research um, or case study site there in the Peruvian Ants, um, there are a lot of like similarities, which will have to do that um, like many Andean people have indigenous roots, although they don't uh, identify them um, as indigenous communities and this well has to do with with the history and the politics and how the state has for example like defined indigenous or peasant at different times uh, but anyway it's interesting to see how people still like have these different kind of ways of perceiving nature and um, um, yeah, water or, or the, the environment. And it's not only like restricted to official indigenous communities. And, and yeah, I think these, these relations are interesting. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm, I'm very curious to hear a bit more about that in terms of the, the interaction, the perception. I mean, especially thinking of tropical glaciers and with climate change and like the, the heating up how finite of a resource they are. Cause you were talking about the, the sort of the feeling and sadness of people noticing the climate change around them. So I, I was kind of curious, like, could you, could you delve into that a little bit more? I mean, as well, like, are there, is there greater competition going on for this water? I'm yes. I'm, I'm curious about this cultural aspect and as well, like if the government is so neoliberal, are they trying to bring in like Nestle or something like that to bottle glacial water or, or, or something? Mm, yeah, that is um, a very good question because actually like water tensions and water conflicts is one of the, the key themes uh, in my research. And uh, uh, yes, the competition for water especially has intensified in, in recent decades. Um, on one hand, because of, of climate change and, and glacier retreat and that there, there is less um, physical uh, water available. Um, also the contamination, the region where I'm doing research there, uh, there is a lot of um, extractivism, uh, mining companies. So that is also uh, another thing that is, is uh, causing that there is less available uh, like clean water, uh, but the other thing is the the what is causing the competition is uh, exactly the the industries, the the growing uh, cities, and kind of like the intensification of 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 water use, uh, and so 
uh, there in in that re region where I'm I'm doing research. It's called uh, the Mantaro River Valley. Uh, there are many kind of um, or different kind of water conflicts going on. Um, one is, for example, the competition for for uh, water access and quantity between the peasants and, um, uh, for example, the water companies that are providing potable water to, to the cities. Uh, but there are also conflicts between the peasant communities who are um, having tensions and struggles over irrigation turns, turns because um, their irrigation system is based on, on canal irrigation. So there are like gates that they open and, and close and, and depending on, on which gate you open, um, like the water flows to a certain field of a, of a certain um, family or, or a farmer. So there are those conflicts and also um, mining related conflicts. And I'm actually currently writing a, a paper on on one, this kind of like mining conflict in which we're looking at uh, exactly like different kind of meanings that the water has for um, different people living at different altitudes, why sometimes they're, they're, there is a conflict and sometimes not. Um, it's these dynamics are like very interesting because um, oftentimes like water conflicts are portrayed as as that there are bad companies or bad government and and like uh, local people who are resisting against them. But what I have found in my research that these uh, conflict dynamics are often like way more um, complex and and there are often like no um, clear like sites but there can be like peasant communities like allied with government officials or other peasant communities allied with with the with the mines who actually like um, protect the mine and and um, they resist the the environmental activists who who are against the mine so I think it's the, the interesting question is like, like why these, like how these relations occur and, and, and why, why, why the these dynamics are as, as they are. Yeah, I mean, it's really important that we highlight, you know, that water isn't just water under a single definition, you know, it's like you can't, you can't paint with too broad a brush because there is so much nuance in everything. Well, there's me painting with a really broad brush. But, you know, in these conflicts, there is a lot of nuance and things aren't always just one way or another way or right or wrong. There's, you know, a lot of shades of gray. And if, um, if our listeners remember way back when to, I believe it was our second episode, um, Aili Puhala gave us a lot of insight into some of those um, 
questions. Yes, second episode, way back when, November 2019 in the before times. Um, that's before Corona, that is. Um, Aili Puhala gave us some really good insight into, you know, these issues of extractivisms and alternatives like with this mine, you know, it's not always just a black and white issue. There isn't always a very clear answer. So I think that it's really interesting that you're kind of getting in there and really uh, sussing out uh, the nuance. Yes, I think these dynamics are are very uh, interesting. And for example, in, in the Mantaro River Valley, where, where I'm doing research, there is um, one very famous mining town called La Oroya, which has been nominated as one of the contaminated places um, on earth. Uh, it was in early 2000s. Uh, so there have been um, mining activities going on from the early 20th century um, and the mines and the mining activities have caused also like visible environmental degradation and, and water contamination. But at the same time, the, the, most of the residents of La Oroya are um, very much like for the mine. And there have been, for example, environmental um, activists and, and NGOs who um, have been opposing the, the mining activities in, in that city due to its contaminating in, impacts. But they have uh, faced a huge resistance from the local people uh, who are defending the mine um, mostly because many of them work there. The, the mine has uh, built hospitals and, and schools and, and so forth. But what is interesting that like health studies, for example, have found that children of, of La Oroya have high concentrations of, of lead and other heavy metals in their blood. And people are kind of aware of these health and environmental impacts uh, but still uh, for some reason or like they kind of reason that the mine is still more beneficial for them so um, and then there are also like cases which are not as extreme but people perceive uh, that the, the mines are beneficial for them but it also has to do with the like corporate uh, discourses and politics and how they portray their social and environmental res responsibilities. Um, so, yeah, it's it's interesting because it's not always the case that, that people are just opposing the minds, but at the same time, it does not necessarily mean that there are like no environmental or water vulnerabilities in those cases when people, um, well, stay just neutral or, or defend the mine. Um, so yes, it's very interesting how these dynamics are, are not at all so black and white in, in most of the cases. Completely. And this seems to be an interesting pattern that, you know, we've had in a lot of different conversations. Uh, I mean, talked about it all over the world how this type of extractivism can kind of get its way into uh, local cultures and societies to where people you know themselves 
almost forget about any sort of other way of life because it is, I mean, of course, the work itself is not easy. I don't mean to say that at all, but keeping going with it, like the, the money that comes from it and just keeping that system going becomes so much easier in the imagination than trying to do something completely different. So I'm, I'm kind of curious here. I, I'm not at all an expert on the Andes, um, although I, I do like I've sure there has been like some sort of historic mining there i mean like pre-colonial mining and such um and i'm sure that there are communities that have been based around that historically but with these types of mining are they like are they pushing out other sorts of lifestyles that were there before or are they building more on top of like pre-existing mining cultures and then just sort of going in and well basically taking over with massive machines and such mm, both ways um First of all, like the mining in Peru has also colonial roots. So there was um, like kind of artisanal mining already hundreds of years ago uh, in the, during the Inca Imperium, um, which was later like harvested by, by the uh, conquistadores uh, for like more commercial or, or productive mining uh, so so that's how the like the current mining industry has uh, evolved in Peru so in a way it it is a continuum of the local livelihoods of of like small scale uh, mining but at the same time like especially in 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 recent decades since the neoliberal political and economic reforms in Peru in the 1990s which coincident with the with the resource boom the mining has expanded in in territory and its intensity and this has like uh, taken over lands of uh, former uh, agricultural, like small farming lands. So it has affected like particularly local um, small scale farming and, and lives, livestock production uh, and still does. And like in, in many cases where there are conflicts um, uh, between the local communities and the mining companies in Peru, uh, they are exactly like clashes over like people defending their their livelihoods and and ways of living. So yes, it it has went like in in kind of both directions. I mean, yeah. What are people supposed to do against resource boom and like the influx of global capital onto these resource frontiers? I mean, what? what does the average person even do against that? Like, I mean, I don't know. I, I just, the big statement and I don't have any like answers to that, but um, have you seen people um, in your case site being able to stand against kind of these like global forces coming into their space or is it, is it all dire or are there, are there, you know, pockets of hope within like this kind of larger dynamic? Mm, yes, there, there have been cases in Peru that exactly like the local resistance ha has resulted in, in halting the, the, the mining projects. But unfortunately, in, in many cases, uh, that is not the case. But um, 
like many times we talk about our conflicts are perceived as something like bad or or to be avoided or or resolved but um in political ecology which is the theoretical framework of of my research like conflicts are also seen as, as something that can create alternatives and the conflicts do not necessarily always mean like something like violent clashes but they can be like long-term resistant and, and local communities um, like working with NGOs or, or academics and, and maybe like creating some political changes in a, in a long term. Uh, it's well it's not definitely easy as you said Sophia uh, and uh, like the changes do not occur immediately but I like also believe that as academics um, hopefully we can at least somehow like make tiny changes in these structures by doing this kind of research and 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 talking about it and like popularizing our our research so so yes i see that there is some drops of of hope as well i mean and hope is is such an important thing and i mean it is important to be able to get these stories and these important messages out to the world so that people can understand what is happening uh outside and also so that the people inside can perhaps find solidarity with with other groups facing similar issues and this makes me think too i'm curious like people there i mean the people you've been talking with uh, do you get to talk with them much about what they see for the future what they envision for the future what they hope for do they feel like they can keep going on with their livelihoods as they are or do they fear some sort of uh, imposed or drastic change with with the climate change with the government uh, and mining companies taking more and more from water and and from the land mm. Of course, people are concerned, and um, the the conflict that I I'm looking at, um, and the people who are like living close to that mine and involved in in that conflict, they they have um, like said to me, like when we have had conversations, that they they are like concerned because they the communities that um, oppose the the mining project are located in very like high elevations like 4000 meters uh, above the sea level so they have like not so many opportunities uh, in terms of like agricultural production so most of them like produce um, for example like cheese or or milk uh, because it's um, easier to to um, like have livestock production in or like milk production in in those elevations so of course they are worried that uh, because they have um, like found um, like heavy metal um, concentrations in the cheese or yogurt they produce so of course they're concerned that like with the little livelihood opportunities they have like what they're going to do if if the mining operations like keep um, going and not um, like managing the water um, responsibly um, but um, yeah at the same time like many people to whom I, I have talked to like they are 
um, kind of like happy with the place where, where they're living and they feel some kind of like attachment to the place and the community and in the Andean cultures, like the community is, is, is very important. And even though if people move to the cities to, to study or, or to do other work, like the, the community and, and that environment has a very like, or plays an important part of their lives. And, um, well, some people are also like moving away because they find it like too difficult to keep going with the agriculture. And many young people uh, move to the cities to to study and and work in in other um, professions. But um, yeah, it's a um, difficult question. But maybe it's it's also a sign like if people kind of resist and defend the, their environments and the places where they live that they see some kind of like hope and that they see that they can have an impact like in their lives and, and, and futures. That's a really good answer. So we've talked about a lot of different aspects of water, social, political, economic. What about from like, you're obviously coming at water from a qualitative perspective and the social sciences, but what about like the natural aspects of water? How do the social and natural sciences come together around this kind of discussion of water? Yes, I think it's really important to kind of like join these both sides because oftentimes we social scientists uh, talk about environmental change or, or water or water contamination without really having an, like a basic understanding like what's, what's going on in the water. So in, in my doctoral research project. Uh, we're also working with um, local Peruvian uh, biologist who um, she's an expert in, in water uh, questions. Uh, so uh, in, the, in the case of like the mining project and, and the conflict around it, uh, we have also been uh, taking or she has been taking samples uh, from from the river from different altitudes to to kind of like also have a different kind of scientific evidence of of the the heavy metal concentrations or other contaminants or like the water uh, quality in 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 general and uh, i think it's it's really fascinating to actually like having this two kind of data like coming from natural sciences and my own like ethnographic oriented data and to look at like how uh, actually the actual like contamination that exists or does not exist in in different parts of the river how does it affect uh, or how does it resonate with how people uh, perceive contamination and what I have been like finding in my analysis that it doesn't always like have causality that if at this point of river like there are high heavy metal concentrations that they, that in that place people would be the most concerned about the, the contamination so uh, I think it's really important to like have this that this like natural science based evidence but also to kind of like analyze like what other things 
influence the meanings people give to water or water pollution than the actual pollution. Uh, but in general, I think like that we social scientists should should cooperate more with natural um, scientists, especially when when working with questions of in environmental change. I think at least for me, like this working together and cooperation has been like so fruitful and I have learned so much about water and um, how water behaves and how the, the heavy metals behave, for example, in water that, that um, I didn't know before. Yes, definitely. I think that that is such a huge thing of, of the social sciences and natural sciences coming together. And, you know, I think, you know, to to give yourself some credit too, I'm sure that the, the natural scientists have learned a lot from you because, you know, don't I don't mean to pat us as social scientists on the back too much, but there is also a lot of very important aspects that natural scientists don't know about to, uh, to highlight that it is a, a two-way street in this. And I'm really, really so glad to hear that this has been so fruitful for you and it's always encouraging. Uh, but unfortunately, we've been going for a, a bit of time now. We know that we need to uh, let you get back to the rest of your day. But, you know, in, in every episode, uh, there always comes a particular time. There's a time. There is a time. And what kind a, of time? A time for a question. So, every episode, we like to ask our guests the question, and it's kind of a, a call to action. If our listeners at home have been inspired, uh, you know, of course they have been, but, you know, they want to do something. They wake up and they say, what can I do to make a difference, to... Uh, learn more, to do more about this topic, uh, what could you recommend for them? Well, I personally get very much inspired um, from popular uh, science and uh, arts. So what I would recommend is to read, for example, uh, one of my favorite books, uh, it's called Memory of Water, written by Finnish author Emmi Itaranta. Uh, which is a book about um, dystopian world uh, transformed by climate change where water is is running out and it's um, managed by an authoritarian government. Uh, it's a um, sad but hopeful story that um, it was a for me as a researcher it was a kind of like it kind of like triggered my senses to to imagine them how a world without water would would look like uh, but there is also like some hopeful aspects of the book there are also like some movies uh, one from latin america is called even the rain which uh, is a story about the famous uh, cochabamba water war in in bolivia um, so yes i would i would recommend it has helped me to kind of like broader my understanding of 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 these questions and writing as well i like to write um, journalistic articles popular science articles so if you want to have an impact i think like making your if you're a researcher or 
like otherwise interested in in climate change or water water questions so writing in a way or like communicating in in ways that are understandable for other people than than scientists um, uh, is is very important and can be a very powerful tool to make an impact and then um, I would like to mention or reveal that this uh, autumn I have been working on a dance project because when I'm not doing a researcher, I'm out there dancing. Um, so um, this fall we have been creating a video for Dance Your PhD competition. Uh, and in this video with uh, me, with my uh, fellow dancers, we're trying to express what is my PhD research about? And this video uh, should come out in, in early January. So I recommend you to, to follow the YouTube channel of Dance Your uh, PhD competition or, or my social media, Twitter or Instagram. I'm gonna post the video there as soon as it's gonna be out. Oh, fantastic. Uh, always love the um, love all the suggestions and always love the dance your PhD nature. Uh, that's a competition that's put together or put on by nature, which is um, I think University of Helsinki has actually had a pretty good track record in that. So I imagine with uh, your troop and talents on it, it's uh, going to be quite the amazing contribution. Um, we will make sure to link in the show notes to the books, movies, and then also the social media that has been mentioned. And uh, yeah, definitely everyone should uh, check that out. And uh, yeah, if you've never heard of the Dance Your PhD competition, if you're sitting at home thinking like, what on earth are these people talking about, then definitely check out uh, the YouTube channel that we're going to link because there are some really fun uh, contributions that really highlight the um, alternative scientific communication or, you know, communicating science through the arts, which is super cool. Yes. Thank you so much for this. And, you know, really looking forward to seeing what the, the final uh, dance going into the competition is going to be. And, you know, just thank you so much for coming on and, and getting to spend some time this afternoon with us. It's been a real pleasure and so, so fascinating. Absolutely. We are so delighted that you came and um, exposed these really important issues around water and gave our listeners some real food for thought about, like, thinking beyond just kind of the topical with a particular resource. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. A huge thank you to Anna Hakenen for coming on and sharing some insight into this fascinating and complex topic of climate vulnerability and water in the Chilean Andes. Please join us in 2022 when we will be having another year of great conversations and amazing insights. From the long but shortening nights of Helsinki, Finland, I am Christopher Shagnon. On behalf of Sofia Hagelani Albov, thanks for listening. Stay safe. Happy holidays to those who are celebrating. And we'll catch you next year.